Welcome to the Lincoln Road Chapel Podcast. We're a church here in Waterloo that exists to become a thriving community of Christ followers. Our mission is to love God, make disciples, and serve our neighborhood, city, and the world. We meet every Sunday morning at 10 a.m., and we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about Sunday morning worship, our ministries, or how to connect in community, visit our website at lrc.church. Welcome to you again. If you came in after announcements, again, my name is Reg Lewicki. It's great to have you on this long weekend, whether you're here in person watching online. Today's a family Sunday, so our kids and our junior high are present with us. So a special welcome to you guys as you get to hang out with us. We're really, it's kind of special to have you with us this morning. Uh, we are working through this series on the book of Acts, and we just sang this song, right? Like, uh, all my life you've been faithful, all my life you've been good. And I think as, you, as we work through the book of Acts, this becomes a really obvious theme, is that God is present and God is working and he is good in all circumstances. And um, we're going to see that again this morning in the text that we're unpacking. But before we get to that, here's kind of something um, that I've been thinking about. So this is like the pre-sermon, okay? So just buckle up. Um, <laughs> This is something that struck me as we've been working through this series, and this is a reminder for us all that the Bible uh, is given to us in many ways as a piece of literature. And so uh, what's that, the simple way of saying that is that the biblical authors are not just dumping information onto the text that they're just trying to fire hose at you. They're actually being very intentional and very purposeful in the things that they are writing. And so here's something I've noticed as, this far as we've worked through the book of Acts, and I... I'm just going to be honest. I looked at a couple of commentaries. I can't find anybody else who says this, um, but I can't really, I can't be the first person to have noticed this. I'm, I'm not that smart, but um, look at this. Here's how the book of Acts starts, right? If you remember, we've already gone through all this. The book of Acts starts with the story of Jesus just with his disciples, right? And he's saying, I'm going to send the Spirit, and then it kind of bleeds into the story of Pentecost, which begins in a locked room, again, only with the apostles and the followers of Jesus, and then after that, it kind of spills out into the street, and you have a Peter preaching to the crowds, and many people come to faith, and they put their faith in Jesus. And then the next story after that is the story of, um, of, uh, of this like, kind of like the tiny snippet, right, that says, this is the fellowship of the believers. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to the table, and it's really kind of cool, and it's just about them. And then after that, it was this story about Peter and John going up to the temple, right, and they come across this a crippled beggar, and they heal him, and then they kind of mix it up with the religious leaders for a little bit. Following that story is a story we looked at last week that Lisa was teaching. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which is this very kind of uncomfortable story about something that happens within the community of believers. This morning, our text is going to be a story about the apostles, again, doing miraculous works out in the public eye, and again, drawing the attention of the religious leaders and coming under some measure of persecution. Next week, it's a story about uh, caring for the widows of all sort of all backgrounds. How do we make sure that the people within the church are being cared for properly? After that is the story of Stephen being seized and being stoned, and then there's this, there's this collection of stories of persecution. But here's the thing that I noticed is that Luke keeps bouncing back and forth between stories of the internal life of the church and the stories of engaging in the broader world around them, back and forth, back and forth, in and out. And I've been struck, I think, that they are both critical parts of the life of the Jesus community. We can't only do one. We need to be engaged in both. We are bound together as family. We are growing together to become more like Jesus, 
but we also have a responsibility to be engaged in the world around us. I'm not crazy, right? You guys see that, right? That's in the text, okay? We need to write a commentary together because, yeah, that's good stuff. Okay, a week ago, uh, yesterday, a week ago Saturday, a cross-section of people from Lincoln Road Chapel gathered from both our English congregation, our Mandarin congregation. We gathered to think through and have a day of discernment around, really, these two areas. The idea of a discipleship and the idea of outreach inside the church, how we grow together to be like Christ, and outside the church, how we might be reaching out to those around us. And we spent time assessing the things that we're doing well. We carved out space to listen to God, to hear maybe where he might be bringing us next as a church. And here was the big thing, for me at least, that emerged out of our time together. It was I was encouraged by the real sense of excitement that I saw on people's faces as they kind of committed or recommitted to say, this is who we are supposed to be. And in fact, it's not just who we are supposed to be, but this is who we are committing to continue to be. That we'd be on the journey of faith together in such a way that other people are being invited into the hope and the life of Jesus. And so this has sparked uh, interest in, fr- in future further conversations around what this can tangibly look like. And I was only a part of one of the conversations, so I kind of feel left out on the discipleship side of things. But within the outreach side of things, uh, I was involved firsthand. And there was this sort of understanding that we have these tremendous opportunities right here, right now, right in front of us, that God is bringing people to us that we get to love and be in community in, whether that's home base and base camp during the summer, right, that we have these kids from the surrounding neighborhood, coming from all walks of life, all different backgrounds, and what would it mean for us to receive them well? What would it mean for us to to give space for them and to love them with the love of Jesus? We've been connected with many international folks who join us through our many, many, many ESL classes that we are running. And so there's this question of how might we more deeply and more meaningfully enter into relationships with them? How do we share life with them as they're adjusting to a new cultural context? What would it look like to to, to love them, but also to speak the good news of Jesus into their lives? And then, of course, you you walked into this building, many of you, this morning. And it's an interesting building, isn't it? It used to be a community center. So there's always this question in the back of our minds. How are we using this building? What would it look like for it to be a beacon of light and of hope again in this neighborhood? So many pieces of dialogue yet to be had, but I'm going to invite you simply to pray for these conversations, to pray that we would have creativity, that we would have an ongoing sense of excitement, that we wouldn't lose momentum in this, and that we would kind of move together, all of us, to become more like Jesus for the sake of others. And so there's a question for you, too. What does that look like for you? How do you engage in the life and the ministry of the body of believers And then what does it look like for you to be reaching out with the hope of Jesus in the places that God has placed you with a purpose? So bang, that's sermon number one, okay? Uh, So there were no notes, but uh, hopefully you jotted some stuff down. Okay, as we move to our text this morning, I want to ask you a question. I want to see where my people are at. How many of you have seen the newest Top Gun that came out last summer? Anybody? couple? Okay, good. Okay, good. Because I didn't have a backup illustration if nobody had seen that. But um, the first Top Gun movie came out when I was like nine or 10. And so that means it's like a seminal movie for me growing up. And so I was very stoked that there was a new one coming out. And uh, Carolyn and I, we don't go to the theater a ton anymore, but we decided together 
this is definitely a big screen movie. And so we went last summer to see it, and it didn't disappoint. It was a ton of fun. Um, if you've seen the movie, I'm not going to give any spoiler alerts. There's airplanes and stuff, and some stuff blows up, and, and somebody wins in the end. But um, <laughs> it's like every other movie, right? But if you've seen the movie, did you notice how many times there were these very intentional callbacks to the first movie. Like, they didn't even try to hide it, right? There were these echoes that sort of just came from the past. Well, here's what I've been thinking. The stories in the Bible, they often do the same thing or a similar thing. Sometimes this is the result of biblical authors who are shaping accounts in a particular way because they want you to think about a story that's already happened. And sometimes this just happens because that's who God is, that God is consistent in the way that he shows up. Well, this morning, uh, we're still in the book of Acts. We're still in Acts chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 42. This is a massive chunk of Scripture. I keep taking the big um, chunks of Scripture, but I gave Lisa the hard one last week, so it's, it, it all evens out in the wash. Um, but this, is, this story today really feels like a callback to the text that we looked at two weeks ago in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4. But more than that, and I hope we're going to see this, our text this morning is calling back so many times to the ministry of Jesus. And so as I said already, this is a big chunk of scripture. We're just going to study it together. Um, we're going to listen to what it says. We're going to be encouraged by what it might mean for us. We're not going to read it all the way through. So if you have a Bible or you have a Bible on your device, it might just be helpful for you to have it open in front of you so you can kind of follow along. We're going to kind of jump in and out of the story as we, uh, as we hear it, as we talk through it, as we look to see what it might mean for us. So we are going to look at the first uh, four verses, five verses here. So this is Acts uh, chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 12, and it says this. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. And as a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed." short little paragraph, uh, really um, Luke is giving us a summary statement of the kind of things that are happening. But within this text, what you see is you see echoes, you see foreshadowing, and you see the emergence of a tension that's going to carry on through the rest of the book of Acts. And so the first thing that we see evident in the text this morning, particularly, is an echo to the ministry of Jesus. The apostles are doing the very same things that Jesus had been doing. They are healing the sick, and they are casting out demons. And like you see when you read the Gospels, if you read the story of Jesus, uh, we see that word gets out. And people are very excited about this. And people are, are gathering, uh, they're sick and they're afflicted, and they are bringing them to try to find the apostles, just like they did with Jesus. Crowds are bringing their sick, bringing their afflicted. Their desire is that they might be made whole. And then kind of there's this line that maybe you noticed in the text. It's kind of just tucked in a little bit there, that people lay their sick on the street in mats and on beds so that Peter's shadow might just sort of pass over. What a weird verse, right? 
People are coming in desperation. People are coming uh, with the hope that if they can just get close enough, maybe, maybe they would be healed. I can't help but think of this great story, one of my favorite stories in the scripture. I have, they're all my favorites. I love them all. But, but Luke chapter 8, there's this story of a woman, right? You maybe know this one. She'd been bleeding for 12 years, has some sort of an affliction in her body. And there's this crowd around Jesus, and she says to herself, if I can just get close enough to just touch the hem of his robe, maybe I might be made whole. The same thing, it seems, is happening again that the power of Jesus is at work in his apostles. And word has spread to the far reaches, bringing crowds to come with hope that there could be wholeness for them, that there's life for them. It's an echo, it's a reminder. Don't miss this, that Jesus is still at work. It's part of what the book of Acts teaches us about our day, is that Jesus is still at work. But there's also kind of this foreshadowing that's happening here. Luke tells us that the believers gather in a particular place. He says, they gather at Solomon's colonnade. This is a a porch inside the outer wall of the temple courts. And the last time we heard about Solomon's colonnade was two chapters ago, right after Peter had healed this beggar who'd been on the side of, uh, outside the gate beautiful. Uh, This is where they all gather, right? They all gather in Solomon's colonnade, and then the crowds come to see what happened. And this is the place where uh, the attention of the religious leaders is gotten, right? And that's when it kind of comes unraveled a little bit for Peter and John. They have to kind of mix it up, as I I said before. They get arrested. They get told, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And if we were to actually take Solomon's colonnade one step further, it actually only appears one other time in the entire scriptures. It happens in a story back in John chapter 10. There's this story where Jesus is doing Jesus things, and these people come to him, and they say, just tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Like, we see all the miracles you're doing. And Jesus gives this answer that that he equates himself with the Father, that he is part of the Godhead. And people get very, very upset by this. And so they begin to pick up rocks because they're going to stone him. And Jesus says, for which of these miracles that I've done for you, where I've put people back together, where I've healed them, where I've given them life, for which of these are you going to stone me? And so Jesus eventually has to evade their plan by slipping away, but it's clear that they want to kill him. I think Luke, by bringing us back to Solomon's colonnade, is sort of just dropping the hint. It's going to happen again. It's going to happen again. And this is where we see this tension of the work of Jesus in and through his people bubble to the surface. In a lot of ways, it gets captured in verse 13. We're told that they gather in Solomon's colonnade, and it says, no one else dared to join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Commentators often connect this back to the story we looked at last week of Ananias and Sapphira. So there's like this very like disturbing story happens within the life of the believers, right? This jarring episode. And so in many ways, it kind of weeded out the people who were nominal Christians. They were like, ah, oh boy. Like if I'm not going to take this seriously, I should maybe step away because that didn't look like a lot of fun. And so uh, the idea is that there's only those who are totally committed to the cause of Jesus. It certainly doesn't stop people from coming to Christ. Our text says that many men and women continue to put their faith in Jesus. So while it might be a reach back to the story of Ananias and Sapphira, I think what we're also seeing here is a desire for people 
to experience the very good things that the apostles are doing, but wanting to some degree to keep it at arm's length. We really like the goodness of what you're doing. We really like that people are being healed. We really like that demons are being cast out. They see it's good. They identify it as good. They want to benefit from it. Mm, but not totally sure we want to embrace the name and the message of Jesus. That sounds a lot like the world we live in, doesn't it? I'm reading a book right now by a historian who wouldn't identify as a follower of Jesus, but he notes that so much in our world today, so much in our culture we take for granted actually came out of the roots of the Christian movement. The things that we, uh, we desire, things like equality and justice, human dignity, of the virtue of self-sacrifice, leveraging my strength for the good of others, coming alongside people who are in oppression and setting them free. All these things have their roots in the Christian faith and the Christian message. And our world adopts these ideas. And our world even champions these ideas, but they believe that they can do it without Jesus. It's what Mark Sayers defines a post-Christian world as, that they, we want the kingdom without the king. This is the tension, I think, that we see in the text, and it gets the attention, as it did back in chapter 3, of the religious leaders. Verse 17 says this, that the high priest and all of his associates who were members of the party of Sadducees, they were filled with jealousy, and they arrested the apostles, and they put them in public jail. Okay, so as far as game plans for success, I'm not sure that the early church could have done it much worse, to be honest. They are literally gathered in the front yard of the high priest, right? They're just like out in plain view, uh, kind of sticking it to them. They're in the temple courts. They're proclaiming Jesus in front of the very people who had sent Jesus to be crucified. On top of that, they're proclaiming that Jesus is resurrected. And in the text, we just heard that, you know, the high priest and his associates were Sadducees. And the thing about Sadducees were that they didn't believe even in a future resurrection, right? That there's a, a future resurrection of the dead. Never mind that there maybe is a resurrection that's already happened with Jesus. And here are the apostles announcing that resurrection is not just a future thing, but is a present reality. And these common, uneducated people are proclaiming a message that undermines their authority, their beliefs, and on top of that, they're doing it with such a power that is bringing wholeness and healing to the masses. And so, yeah, Luke is like, they were filled with jealousy. They're like, this thing is working. Like, we don't like it, but it's working. The entrenched systems of power uh, chafe against it. And so the apostles are all rounded up, and they're thrown into jail as if that's going to do anything. I can't help but notice, look how nonchalant Luke is here in verse 19. Eh, but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. So the next morning, they just go set up shop again. They go back into the temple courts. They begin to proclaim once again the good news of Jesus. The high priest and his buddies, they get up. They have their first cup of coffee. They roll into the office. They, they call a meeting to order to figure what they're going to do with these apostles. Someone says, maybe we should go get them. And so they send a guard to go. And the guards are still out front of the jail. And the doors are still locked. And they open everything up. But nobody's inside. 
This is awkward, right? This is an awkward moment for them. I know we put it here. I was in a different cell. And, and then they get news that the apostles are right back where they were taken from. They are in the temple courts, and they are proclaiming the same message of the resurrection of Jesus. Earlier, we were talking about echoes in the text. I can't help to think, but the last time in the New Testament, we had a story where somebody was barricaded and guarded by soldiers outside, happened at Easter, where the body of Jesus was laid inside of a tomb and a big rock was rolled in front of him and, and Roman centurions guarded it and God said, that's not a problem for me. I think this is why Luke can be so nonchalant. We've quoted this verse before, but if the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that is working through us, why would we think that being tossed in a prison is too big for God to take care of? This, uh, you maybe know this, but uh, um, Tim Keller passed away on Friday. Tim Keller, if you don't know Tim Keller, uh, I don't think it's too much to say, maybe one of the most significant evangelical voices of my lifetime. Brilliant man, humble man, great, great servant of God. Um, there's this video that's floating around. I've seen it before, but he was asked, you know, young pastors what would, who are going through a hard time, what would you uh, encourage them with? And, and really, I think uh, the same thing could be said for anybody who's following Jesus going through a hard time. And he says something to the effect of this, uh, like life is hard. Things are going to come out of nowhere. You're going to have to navigate them. But if Jesus Christ really got up, if Jesus Christ really was raised from the dead, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. Like, if that happened, what can happen in this world that can shake us? And so you see that the guards go to get the apostles again, and they don't run. And they don't fight, they just come, okay, we'll go back to the high priest. And they don't seem to be afraid. And I think it's because they know if Jesus Christ really got up, it's going to be okay. They're brought before the high priest who looks at this ragtag group, and I, I have to imagine right there, with, in my this is just reg imagination, but right there in the middle, Peter and John, big goofy grins on their face, back at it again in front of the high priest. And he's just looking at them, and he's like, oh, fellas, did we not talk about this? It's like, the, I do this with my kids all the time, right? Like, we've had this conversation, right? And there they are all standing up front, and Peter and John in the middle still proclaiming the resurrected Jesus. Didn't we talk about this? We told you not to teach in that name. You're making us look bad. And it's interesting to me in the text that the high priest and the Sanhedrin won't even speak the name of Jesus. Right? They say, uh, we commanded you not to speak in this name, and you're trying to make us seem guilty of this man's blood. In every way, the Sanhedrin wants to get rid of Jesus. They want for him to be forgotten. But try as they might, he's not going anywhere. Again, like we talked about earlier, there's a sense here that they see the good things happening. I think that's what is stirring their jealousy God is working powerfully through them. Broken people are being made whole. And that's not the thing that they demand stop. It's the part of their uh, movement that proclaims the resurrection of Jesus that needs to go away. It's essentially that he's saying, like, just, can you just be good Jewish people, right? Just, just do what you need to do, but don't bring Jesus into the equation. Stop teaching in his name. 
And Peter to this basically replies, okay, like I know we had this conversation, but it's clear that you weren't listening to us either because did I not say, who am I supposed to listen to, you or to God? It's always going to be God that I listen to first. And Peter says that again, and he doubles down. He says this, God raised Jesus from the dead, who you killed. Again, he probably loves that moment of pointing towards the high priest. And he has been exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he is offering forgiveness of sins in all of Israel. And it's not just that we believe this. This isn't just like an idea that we've come to believe. We are witnesses to this. We have experienced this. We have seen this with our own eyes, and we are empowered by God's Spirit. And the response is exactly the same. We went all the way back to John 10. Remember, we talked about the connections in Solomon's colonnade. If you go back to John 10, the same reaction that was given to Jesus, they're furious. They want these men to be killed. And honestly, that's likely what would have happened except that there's an unlikely source that steps in. Verse 34 says this, But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin, and he ordered uh, that the men be put outside for a little while. Just go out there. Let the adults talk for just a moment, right? And so uh, he says to the, addresses the crowd of the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thutis appeared, He claimed to be somebody. And about 400 uh, men rallied to him, and he was killed, and all his followers were dispersed. It all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt, and he too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or their activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men, and you will only find yourself fighting against God. And his speech persuaded them. And they called the apostles in, and they had them flogged, and then they ordered them not to speak the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Of all the people who could speak up, who could be uh, the cooler head that was prevailing, It's a Pharisee. Like, the irony of this is so fascinating. The Gospels are littered with stories where the the Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up, and here we have one speaking words of wisdom into a very heated situation. And his counsel is simply for them to wait and see. See, their history had others who'd either claimed to be a Messiah or others had sort of put that on them. And time, as it seems, has a habit of working all these things out. Thutis had a bit of a following. He was overcome. All those that had bound themselves to him were scattered and destroyed. Now, we don't know very much about Thutis. There's no other writings about him. But Judas of Galilee, well, he shows up in the writings of Josephus. He's a man who refused to pay tribute to Caesar. He, he led a revolt, and he was squashed, as most uh, revolts against Rome were. He may have lived on in some way through the the movement of the zealots who we see in the text, but he was, for all intents and purposes, stamped out. But the critical thing that Gamaliel says here, the truest wisdom that comes from his mouth is this, leave these men alone, let them go, for if their purpose or their activity is of human origin, it will fail. Like, just wait and see. But if it's from God, If it's from God, you will not be able to stop them, 
And in fact, you'll just find yourself fighting against God. That is not a good place to find yourself. Peter has already twice voiced to them that they must listen to God above men. And now Gamaliel says, if it's something being done in their strength, it will peter out. No pun intended. But if it is of God, it will prevail and you will be on the wrong side of that. We should not presume because of this that Gamaliel was a sympathizer of the Christian movement or that he thought in any way that Jesus was the Messiah. But what he does convey convey is a steadfast belief in the power and the sovereignty of Israel's God. That God is still in control and God will work things out as he sees fit. And so for us, that's a good message to listen to because Gamaliel displays a humility that says, I don't need to weigh in on everything. I don't need to judge everything's legitimacy. It'd be like today's day, he'd be like, I don't need to tweet about that. I can just let it be because it's going to work itself out. And what's fascinating is that even though he isn't pro-Jesus, it is his humility that the sovereignty of God gets worked out, that the Sanhedrin hears those words, and they are convinced, and they relent. They only flog the apostles and tell them to stop again before letting them go free. God has used the most unlikely of characters to keep his movement moving. That's going to happen in an even bigger way in a couple of chapters. God is in control, and at times he uses means that we would not expect to keep things going. It's a pretty good story, right? Yeah? How many of you guys actually remember the story? Like some of you are Bible scholars, right? We don't, I don't know, I feel like I, a bunch of stories in Acts get lost on me and I just forget about them. But, but here's the thing I really like about this story. All the supernatural and miraculous moments, the healings, the casting out of demons, this angel rescuing them from prison, they're almost peripheral. There's almost no detail given to them. Isn't that the thing you would want to write about? Like, I want to tell this story in really deep ways, right? Not much description is given. It's just simply told that it happened. It just happened. And in the end, ultimate rescue comes through the voice of somebody who on paper is probably opposed to everything that the apostles are doing and what they stand for. It's the common sense of this Pharisee who sees the good things happening and believes you know, as much as he can, that God is trustworthy to take care of the things happening in his name. And so when I think about it through that lens, I think for us this morning, this story is an invitation for us to be people who live our faith in Jesus in very overt and out loud ways in the world around us. Two weeks ago, actually almost every week, we've talked about being heaven and earth people. Right, that we'd be reflections of Jesus and how we live, that we bring pockets of wholeness and shalom and hope to the world around us. That's at the heart of our text this morning. But we also see that the believers are living out this faith in Jesus in a very public way. Where do we find them? They're on the porch in the temple courts. They're on the front step of the religious systems of influence, the powerful people of the day. And living there in an out loud way, what is the reputation that they have there? It's not that they're contentious arguers. It's not that they're troublemakers. No, no, they are, as verse 13 says, highly regarded by all the people. They were known for their good deeds. 
They were known for the positive impact that they were making on their direct community. And in fact, so much so that that reputation begins to ripple out beyond the the walls of the city. People are intentionally seeking the apostles out, coming with hope that maybe this community could provide wholeness and life for those who are sick. And so a great question that I need to ask myself, a great question you might think about asking yourself is, what is your reputation in your neighborhood or in your workplace or in your social circles? Maybe another question we could ask is, what is our reputation as Lincoln Road Chapel here as a church community in Lincoln Heights? The more that we are formed to be like Jesus, the more good we will be a part of around us. And yet to live a life that loves our neighbor as ourselves, we have to just recognize it won't always be received well. Care for the poor, comfort for the lonely, engaging in social justice issues, all of these things are great and laudable. But see, the world gets really anxious when we begin to bring the name of Jesus into the mix. Jesus says, don't hide your light under a bushel. He says to shine your light in such a way that our good deeds point towards the Father in heaven. Peter would later write that we're to live in such a way that even though the outside world would reject our message, they cannot dismiss the goodness that we bring to the world. This, I think, is the tension of Christian living, that the world who wants the kingdom without the king But as those who have given ourselves to the resurrected Jesus, we understand that he needs to be at the forefront of everything we do. And so we continue to live lives that produce shalom, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways. We live lives that declare the glory of Christ Jesus, and we do it out in the open. We do it knowing that it's going to chafe against the powers that be, whether that's religious systems or political systems or economic systems. And where they lash out we can have hope that God is still at work. Even in the places where they lash out and it's hard, we can believe, as Keller said, if Jesus Christ really got up, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. That the spirit who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is the same spirit at work in and through us. We don't have to worry about what difficulties are before us because our God is the God who makes a way. We don't have to worry about what's happening around us because God's purposes are being worked out, out in the world around us too. And if something is from him, it's going to flourish. And if it's not, it will fade away. And so you and I, we are simply being invited to go deeper, to lean into what he is saying to us, to put our hand towards the thing that he's called us to do. And we can have that full trust, that full assurance that he will see it through and that he will accomplish his good will and purpose through us. Like the Apostle Paul told the church in Rome, he said, uh, what would it be like for us to say this, that I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because it is the power of God and salvation for everyone who believes. And so this morning, on a long weekend, we're just being invited to consider where are you being called to live a life of the goodness of God? Where are you to be a reflection that declares the power and the lordship of Jesus? Together, may we have faith that God is at work in us. Might we uh, live in such a way that his glory is on full display, that we'd be bright lights of hope and of love uh, to a world that is desperate for it. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. 
In the same way, let your light shine before people that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for these stories where uh, you work in really big ways, but you do it in the text in quiet ways where we don't see a lot of detail. It just kind of happens. It's a good reminder for us that you are present in the thick and the thin and in the darkness as well as in the good times. And I pray for us as a community of faith that we would uh, continue to lean into what your spirit is telling us, that you would form us to look more and more like Jesus, and that we would step out with boldness um, in public ways that we would just live our faith out loud. Help us to be conduits of goodness and of mercy and of grace. Help us to see people who need to be loved and accepted and received. And in all of it would it be done to glorify your name and to announce the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your work here in this place. We thank you for your work in us and through us. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions or thoughts on this teaching, feel free to reach out because we'd love to connect. For more information about our church and all the things happening in the LRC community, you can visit our website at lrc.church. See you next time.